0: Welcome to episode 75 of Breakout Culture. I'm Charlotte Metcalfe and I'm the Associate Editor at Country and Townhouse Magazine.
1: And I'm Ed Vasey. I'm none other than the Culture Editor at Country and Townhouse Magazine and we're going back in time to the 80s this week, before I was born, because (laughs) (laughs) our guests today were embedded in the literary scene at a time of momentous change. One of them, John Walsh, has written a book, All About It, Circus of Dreams, Adventures in the 1980s Literary World.
0: Now, before you think it can't have been that adventurous to be starting out as a bit of a dog's body in a publishing house and aspiring to be a literary editor, hang on and keep listening. Because John Walsh, who did go on to become a renowned literary editor, journalist, author and popular panellist on Radio 4's The Right Stuff, is going to prove that it was probably the most exciting time to work in the literary world as it was exploding with talent as new authors like Martin Amis, Hanif Qureshi, Ian McEwen, Julian Barnes Sebastian Fox and Salman Rushdie and many, many more were coming onto the scene and changing the literary landscape forever.
1: I can't believe you didn't even mention any women novelists there. <laughs> yes. Anyway, shocking. those were the days when everyone still jostled around in offices and went to a lot of pubs. So everyone knew each other. And here with John today is Sally Emerson. John was very in awe of her back in the 80s. He probably still is as she was editor of Books and Bookman. She's now an award-winning, highly acclaimed novelist, short story and travel writer and an anthologist. Welcome to you both. Thank you.
0: Well, it's an absolute delight to have you both here. And first, let me say, John, I loved your Thank you. It it was like holding up a mirror to my own past, as my first job after university was as a dog's body also, for Virago Press in Dover Street. Oh, Carmen. Yes, and um, whom you wickedly describe as a menacing nanny in your book. <laughs>
2: well, I say she resembles, resembles one. She's more benign than that, I think. But no, she, she scared people. She scared yeah, well, people.
0: She's, 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 no, she was very funny, though. But the most yeah. extraordinary thing is how incredibly famous all those budding writers who were starting out became. And you actually don't hold back with your scalpel sharp and very funny observations. When you started out, John, Sally was already pretty established as an editor. So I'm wondering if she saw all these authors and bosses in the same way.
2: Well, Sally, well, in terms of writers, I mean, Sally was uh, working at Books and Bookman when she was at Oxford. So uh, that's some years before... uh, before we met, and she was already going to parties. Uh, Sally, I'm sure, we should be telling you this herself, but she was being uh, sent off to parties by books and bookmen to report back. It's a hell of a job, I must say. For it was uh, my young job students. while I was yeah. at
3: Oxford. I had to Terrible. go and drink gru- champagne and have canapés. How yeah, grueling! I was, it was very grueling. Indeed. But I worked there before when I was uh, before before university, so I hadn't seen. I hadn't seen the Martin Amis's at that point of the world, but as soon as I was at Oxford, I knew them, and, and people like Ian McEwen later on, and yeah. they were very much part of the world.
1: They were Martin part of the 70s. Just,
3: yeah.
2: They yeah. started in the 70s, you must remember, and uh, then the rest of the world caught up uh, 10 years later. <laughs> and Martin's first book came out in 1973, when he was like 21. It's absolutely ridiculous. And, um, and McEwan started in uh, the 75, I think. But their influence was, of course, some, something that liberated an awful lot of other people because it was so, it was so bold and, and so rude and so direct and so kind of undermining of uh, all the uh, decencies that we might think were going on in, in the uh, mid-70s. But it was, no, it was an extraordinary thing. If I may describe it in two metaphors or two similes, it was a flood and an explosion. There was this flood of talent that suddenly appeared in the uh, late seventies, early eighties, and they came thick and fast. They were extraordinary. The people like Julian Barnes and Graham Swift and um, uh, William Boyd, uh, McEwen and Maggie G, uh, Rose Tremain, Pat Barker. They all they all appeared in the early early eighties, and there, it's like some some they they and also they brought out books every every couple of years, like they're on some assembly line uh, now. I'll bang on about it, but that was, the, that was the extraordinary wave of talent, this absolute flood of people, all of whom seemed to be startlingly the original writers. They weren't all doing the same kind of things, uh, but they were difficult, challenging, and funny as hell in, uh, in remarkably different ways.
3: Yes. And you'd look at, the, you'd, you'd pick up a Martin Amos, and suddenly that kind of swagger and the style and the boldness and the confidence, it was as if they were already there on hay and white, sort of fast forwarding to this glittering future they were going to be having, as if they kind of created it in their minds almost. Um, and you just knew that these were people who were changing your whole attitude to words. Words became. You know, just, just so
0: exuberant, so exciting. I think what's extraordinary about it is we all forget that there weren't. I mean, what, you know, let's talk about Tom Waterston.
2: He was he did English at Cambridge under F. R. Levis and um, he started off his business studies and became some a big shot in the drinks industry. But then he moved over to W. H. Smith and uh, as a kind of uh, middle ranging executive, and um, was appalled about somehow um, the fact they about the fact they didn't actually seem to want to sell books that were actually interesting that people might want to read. They, do, they would only do bestsellers or kind of gift books or, you know, toys and stationery. It's a bookshop chain. It's the biggest one in the country. And they're not selling poetry or film books or science books or design books, you know. And he th- suddenly thought, I can see something quite different, a huge chain of books, uh, bookshops where from floor to ceiling they sell every kind of genre, every subject, and they stay open, crucially, until 10 o'clock, Ten o'clock at night every day, including Sunday, which, of course, by then W. Smith and John Menzies wouldn't dream of doing such a thing. They'd all knock off by Saturday lunchtime. You know, Walter Stone's also had this extraordinary vision, and it worked. and He got money got money poured in to subsidise him, and in a matter of three or four years, he had eight uh, branches all over London, the Home Counties, and by eighty nine, he had. Forty eight branches. He started in nineteen eighty two. Extraordinary.
3: But a lot of it was a lot of it was the marketing. I mean they had these hugely talented writers, but the hugely talented writers didn't necessarily create the marketing. The marketing helped to create them they were the two strands it was ready to take them off to set them into that trajectory and the, and the bookshops are obviously a part of it as well yeah. as the newspapers that were at that time expanding enormously as john says and were were very much wanting Material for their plump colour magazines and endless interviews. It
2: wasn't just the, um, the publicity of publishers, the government took a hand as well. And there's a brilliant man called Desmond Clark who ran something called the Book Marketing Council. And he did this very simple thing of saying, getting Lord Snowden to photograph the uh, best British writers um, in a drafty room on the Grayson Road and um, flood the every bookshop and library in the country with a, an image of these famous people. Now, the first year, it was the best of best writers in England, and that were people who were quite elderly. So it looked a bit like a photograph from a twilight home for elderly scribes. <laughs> who like was Bet- in it? Who was oh, in it? There was uh, John Betjeman. There was Rosamund Lehman, who, re- who goes back to the Bloomsbury group, for goodness sake. Uh, there was Anthony Burgess in A Heavy Shadow. There was Malcolm Bradbury, a mere stripling at 49 and Beryl Bainbridge, who is uh, immortal, of course. Yes. Um, but people looking ever so slightly decrepit. I mean, Laurie Lee had a kind of furtive glass of whiskey in his hand, and the photographed in this kind of penumbra by Lord Snowden. But that didn't matter. People loved the idea of being told that this is the best stuff, go and buy it. And they shifted to a quarter of a million copies. And a year later, they did the same thing with the best of young British. And suddenly, from British Writing, looking a bit like a, you know, a rather elderly kind of a home, it was this extraordinary stack of groovy twenty uh, young things under forty, and they were they had leather jackets, they looked a little bit like punks, they gazed at the camera like sulky teenagers. <laughs> and who and, were they? Uh,
0: who, who, who were they?
2: Well, I've got them. I've got the uh, photograph in front of me here. Reading, should I just read read them all? I've got there are eighteen people in this photograph, but there's Ishiguro Kazu Ishiguro sitting okay. on the floor in Some his of kind of lasted, cowboy they? moustache <laughs> and his Timberland boots, looking. Very <laughs> political. Um, there was A. N. Wilson, William Boyd, Adam yeah. Miles James, Jones, Julian Barnes, Pat Barker, Clive Sinclair, Ian McEwen sitting beside uh, uh, Martin amos Lisa Dorbin de Teran, who, mm-hmm. who. Um, burned like a like a sort of a rocket in the 80s and then sort of mm. rather disappeared back to Venezuela. Uh, there's Rose Germain looking very uh, sulky, kind of a boho. Uh, there's Graham Swift looking rather sulky as if he really wouldn't want to be there. Lots of sulks going on in this photograph. Um, <laughs> and uh, Christopher Priest, extremely uh, cool science fiction writer uh, in his leather jacket, leather blouson, looking like a uh, someone else of a cop drama on television. Anyways, that's, that's a... It's that's it not a sweet
3: the way I thought that Martin Amos and Ian McKeown had to sit next to each other in the photograph, yeah. you know, like a school <laughs> photograph. You know, and they right. became part of that huge, that clique for a, yeah. that, that, that really took over the 80s and were the sexiest thing around with, yes. with Martin they, as the sort of Shelley of, the, of mm. in the circle, with everyone circling around him, impressed by him. But yes. they were sitting next to each other sweetly in the photograph.
2: I'm surprised. I thought those two wouldn't be allowed to sit together anymore in class because yeah, they, they just egg each other
1: on,
0: you
2: know. Yeah. Exactly.
1: yeah. Oh, gosh. <clears throat> I of think this, some... is, this is absolutely fascinating. I think Charlotte and I could just sit back and let you two yeah. talk. But it's fascinating to me for a number of reasons. One is the sort of waves of, of fashion. So in the 80s, I, I was sort of unaware of this, that it was the writers that were the sexy ones. Of course, in the 90s, it was the pop stars like uh, Oasis who were the sexy ones. Uh, and also... but. Uh, Funny enough, it was a golden age which presaged a sort of period of turmoil. Just as the, you know, bookshops were booming and newspapers were full of books. In fact, we had Robert McCrum on the podcast a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, yeah. sort of reflecting on the fact of uh, how big the literary pages were in the eighties compared, obviously, to how they are now. But there was a great period of change in newspapers because, of course, Rupert Murdoch mm. and Andrew Neil moved the Sunday Times famously to, to, to Wapping. Now. Tell us a bit about your interesting relationship with Rupert and, and Andrew, because I, I gather you're extremely polite about them in the book. Oh, No, definitely
0: not. I mean, I can't believe you are quite a bridge burner, I'd say, John. You're quite reckless.
2: <laughs> no, no. I mean, no. you're not
0: going to be asked for dinner anytime soon. When you won't be Murdoch on TV news after any Oh, <laughs> no, no. No, no, <laughs> no, no I'm actually
2: very, I, I think you're fine, Charlotte. I'm very respectful about Andrew Neil because he was an absolutely brilliant boss in his tough tough bastard way. And he would um, hold you to account uh, like he'd hold any other department on the paper to account. And he'd say, why why are we leading with a huge biography of Dickens? I mean, who cares about Dickens? I see (laughs) on your list of new books, there's a biography of Arnold Schwarzenegger coming up. Why should we not start with that? And I said, because nobody, nobody who buys the book seriously, who buys hardbacks, in other words, uh, would care to and about buying a, bo- a book on Schwarzenegger, because all we know about him that's interesting is that his dad was a Nazi. Um, and um, Dickens is still the most popular riser in England, in everyone's head, and they would love to, In three weeks' time, I promise you, that that'll be the number one, uh, number one of the bestseller lists, and Schwarzenegger will be nowhere. To which Andrew replied memorably. Well, if that does happen, if that is the case, it's because you and people like you Made this happen. You all kind of <laughs> got together and said, "What's?" It? And he really believed it. I mean, he really oh, did believe it. there was a cabal of uh, of publishers in in you know, Perrier filled rooms, all conspiring together that somebody, some writers should be up and some should be down. Yeah. <laughs> but Andrew, no, he and I got on fine. He was he could be very scary. He wrote particularly dodgy memos. Especially uh, if you got one, your heart pounded. Uh, it would be handwritten on an envelope, and inside there will be a one sheet of uh, A four. Uh, and it was typed, so it was justified right and left. So it was a little square plaque of heat that radiated <laughs> and, I mean, and, so and he would just say very quietly, if this has not happened, if I do have no wish to fall out with you or part company with you, but unless you do this in the future, one or the other will happen. And I've known grown men after the conference on Tuesday, grown men led weeping to the gents uh, because they had such a bollocking <laughs> from Andrew. It was amazing to watch. I mean... And we did have roused about things, but it was I'm very respectful about him in the book, I do think. And Rupert, you know, he was. You're a, not so respectful. You've the way you describe no, him no. is
0: outrageous.
2: <laughs> well, he was. I mean, fair play to him. He was. He did pour money into books. He poured money into books pages, and I think Andrew's Andrew's idea to make the book section of the Sunday Times sixteen pages, which was enormous, and of course. What was was Rupert thinking? He was actually going up up against the TLS, which was the natural uh, competition for the Sunday Times books pages, uh, which he published himself as well. But, of course, you know, he subsidised the Hay-on-Way Festival in its second year, which wouldn't have got going or got anywhere without him. Can you just quickly, while we're on the subject of Hay-on-Way, tell us
0: your lovely Arthur Miller story?
2: This is Peter Florence's first Hay, yeah. He was, uh, it was 88, he was uh, in his early 20s and his dad was doing it with him and he rang up... uh, Arthur Miller. Somehow on earth, Peter, so young, so untried, had uh, Arthur Miller's number. But he got in touch and said, "Hi, would you like to come and talk about your your wonderful uh, plays, your dramaturgy, and your uh, com- uh, forthcoming uh, memoirs at uh, Hay-on-Wye in, in in England, in Wales?" And Miller said, Hey on What is that? Some kind of sandwich?" <laughs> <laughs> Of course, the other story about Arthur Miller was that when he was coming over, I'm not entirely sure you can use this bit, but uh, the Sky Arts people got in touch and said, can we do an outside broadcast and uh, we can offer, you know, Q&A from the audience. Uh, That was all going fine until uh, the the night before, somebody reported that um, in a couple of pubs, the locals were talking to each other and had heard about this and said... I'm definitely, I'm definitely going to go to that. I'm definitely up for the Q and I'm going to, when it comes to my turn, I'm going to say, Arthur, what was it like fucking Marilyn Monroe then?
0: Tell us the other story about you standing next to Sebastian Folks at a party, and you oh, yeah. saw that Julian Barnes had been flirting with Polly Sansom.
2: Yeah, and- who was his publicity yeah. girl? Who was his publicity director? Um, she's extremely. Uh, She's extremely beautiful and extremely personable, and uh, and uh, everybody had a bit of a crush on Polly. Um, but you know, his, she's married uh, to the his, Pink. Married Polly. To yeah, Polly. Yes, no. David David Gilmore. Yeah, sure. But at the time, she was uh, she wasn't married to anyone. Uh, she had a sort of a court of admirers. Anyway. Uh, Julian Barnes' wife, the, the late Pat Kavanagh, the super agent of the day, um, came over and said, for goodness sake, Julian, for goodness sake, what are you doing? I'm waiting over here, for goodness sake. And, and Julian said something like, you know, I'm just coming. Look, I'm just coming. Here's my coat. So I'm just having a chat here. And Sebastian <laughs> Folkes beside me looks over there and said, "Ah, will you look at that? Flaubert's Polly.
1: <laughs> <laughs> you, uh, you, you first met Sally when uh, you sucked up to her about your great literary connections.
2: Well, I swanned into a party once and uh, met her deputy, uh, uh, Carolyn Hart, with whom I went on to have three children, and um, that's the evening changed my life. So it's the night you met your wife. Yeah, yeah. Well, yes, sort of thing. Yeah. He
3: doesn't quite say yeah. that
0: in the
2: book. Yeah. Yeah. She, she gets airbrushed.
0: We, now, we, we, no, she doesn't actually.
2: She doesn't. <laughs> no, i speak no, no. to see. No, she doesn't. <laughs> no, she's. No we, we, no, we didn't. No, we didn't get married. But we, we all we, we took was, John we together, under we,
1: our wings. Your partner.
2: Your partner. How did you try and impress Sally when you met her? I met Douglas Adams, the, the writer of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. And um, I was so thrilled. He was extremely large and funny and terribly talented and brilliant. Um, but I managed to have a conversation with him over th- this dinner party, and I was so thrilled. And I, <laughs> I came along to, to Sally like a sort of puppy and said, gosh, you'll never believe who I, who I met. Um, I'm not sure if you know the guy, but uh, Douglas Adams, The Hitch, Hitchhiker's Guide Funny Book, and she's a kind of, <laughs> Yes, John, that must have been very nice for you. I, I believe he's quite nice. What I didn't realise is that she'd been having a raging affair with Douglas for <laughs> several several months after they met at some literary event somewhere, and I just blundered in there saying, golly, golly, gosh, you wouldn't, you, do you know him at all? So I, I learned I think later. Was very, I think I was very Tactus. cool
0: not to blush or anything or give myself away, I'd, no, which I no, wouldn't cool. realise. But For me, that's what made the book incredibly endearing, because you are very good at... Telling stories against yourself. Thank you. It's Thank probably you. your best quality for
3: for getting on in the literary world because but most of the people there bad. were so kind of pompous and full of themselves that but somebody they don't want somebody terribly confident striding striding in and telling behaving... them what they think. I mean, they're all so full of themselves. Mm, I mean, mm. including Martin Amos and, um, uh, and the yeah. young ones who were as full of themselves as the old ones I used to deal with in the olden days, like A.O. Rouse.
2: Oh, tell know? us, what, what, oh. what did you make of him? Did you like him?
3: Oh, he was horrible. He was just so <laughs> horrible. You know, I was this little girl, really, in, in mm. Books and Bookman, and they people like A.O. Rouse are part of another world, and when they... When they spoke to you and you found out that you were a young female, they thought you must be completely delinquent. And they kind of yelled down the phone. Yeah. And I went to see Harold Acton once in La Pietra in uh, Florence. Yeah. Yeah. And when he saw me, this little girl in this white dress, and she, he'd been imagining some dignified person of about, you know, 78 or some something. Daliger. He was yeah. completely kind of, well, he was polite, but kind of overcome. <laughs> <laughs> I'd asked if I could bring my baby, and he said, "What would I do with a baby?" He said.
2: <laughs> Harold Acton was at university with Evelyn Waugh. Yeah, yeah. This is the the great man from the days him and Brian Howard, who were, you know, <laughs> know avatars of Anthony <laughs> Blanche in *Brideshead*. Uh, Sally was mates with them, and um, and of Dan Mitford yes. Mitford too, surely, and uh, Dan Mosley. Yeah, well,
3: I yes, I went to. Uh, Went to her chateau. She was very charming to meet. You know, very yeah. very charming. She used to write for for books and bookmen. Yeah. But it was it was fascinating. I met um you know, I was Oswald Mosley as well, um at a at a at a lunch I was taken to. Yeah. Uh, most extraordinary. He I mean, was very odd. This sort of ape like man with this strange bald head and very yeah. disturbing. Well, and then moving through, you move through the eighties and Martin and all yeah. those people. Douglas, who wasn't one of those best, Douglas Adams, who wasn't one of those best of British, and when you think about that, how oh. ludicrous that is on the kind of what basis are you choosing people? Of somebody who's written, I was in 1979, was Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, yeah, yeah. and then in the early 70s, in the early eighties, there was Restaurant and. Um, life, the Universe, and Everything. Mm. She's dedicated to me, and um, ah. so long and thanks for all the fish. Oh, the fish. I mean, he was an extraordinary, prolific character. I he, mean, was uh, he, of, prol- he was the biggest and bestseller, the bestseller
2: of. He was the biggest bestseller,
0: but they were very, very good as well, and yeah. yet that was ignored. Who did make that
2: choice then? The second year there was, I think, um, uh, Frank Delaney was the who was he was on yeah you know, he was on radio he was on Radio Four and Poetry Please and so on. Uh, there was him. There was a lady who ran a bookshop, and oh. Um, I think it was the wonderful Martin Goff, who well he was he was he was the man behind um, the Book Marketing Council. Rather a rather slender gang of judges to be doing yes. such an important, extraordinary uh, how they
3: created the destinies, wasn't it? I mean that yeah, small group yeah. of people with lists and things like that they can create people's whole futures just by a kind of whim. But there were some fantastic female
0: writers at that time.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, Rose Tremaine, Rose she's Tremaine been on, She as, came on the podcast. She was absolutely. Wonderful. She had a prose style which was so supple and sexy and clever and it just bounced words around and it was funny. Nobody can touch Rose Tremaine for a prose style except maybe Martin and possibly Graham Swift but he's really going for it. I mean, Rose is fantastic. She's She's a real star. She's
3: magnificent. But that ability, I suppose... One of the things you feel about when you look back on the 80s, you think it was quite a me- time for male writers, that they were the ones who had the, the swagger and the confidence. But but a lot of women were a bit little meek and quiet, and they weren't so eager to put their heads above the parapet, and they weren't part of a little clique like the, the Martin Amis and Ian McEwan and Redmond O'Hanlon, Craig Rain, all those people, they, they very much supported each other and gave each other the confidence. Because it was a very confident period, wasn't it wasn't a confident decade, yeah. and the women didn't make huge um a huge impact in the same way as the men did
2: i think sally and i were talking earlier and uh, she said women were only sort of kind of allowed to be uh, really unusually good if they were either kind of witchy or basically mad so either yeah. you know, angela carter or oh, beryl yeah. baybridge um and yes. that was an extraordinarily good spot because i think that's absolutely true
3: yes and the men had the kind of definition at that time or, or all yeah. those characters—they were very clear-cut, and the women didn't have it. Once you got older, you were a bit more defined. Or if you were, mm. if you were lesbian, or if you were Jeanette, um, Jeanette Winston, Jean Winston, you
0: had more definition in each case. Yeah. You couldn't have been a Sally Rooney in the eighties, could you?
2: You'd have really
0: been no. Like it just a- never happened.
2: Be like a dandelion in the middle of a kind of, um, you know, flamethrower. Frankly, because <laughs> Sally Rooney is so seems to be such a meek and unadventurous writer linguistically. No matter what, no matter how much she she does these uh, Austenesque uh, um, sort of pirouettes around feelings. But I mean, it, it, it's just the lack of boldness of delivery is uh, I think what's what's um, made, made some. Some female writers are uh, not considered quite well as they should have been. I like, say Br- Anita Brooker, for instance, was uh, was I think turned down by several people. Discovered by Liz Calder, who discovered Salman Rushdie and so on, because she spotted there was a voice of calm regret that was like nobody else's when she read the first book, uh, *A Start in Life*, and she she looks after her until she won the Booker Prize in uh, with *Hotel du Lac* in I think eighty uh, four. Anyway, uh, but yeah, which
0: was it, a very uh, beautiful book.
2: Yes, yes, beautiful. I loved that book.
0: Yeah. Mm. Uh, you but described Liz Calder very well. You said she's as English as treason.
2: <laughs> <laughs> old fashioned word. Well, no, she's, it's... Uh, she's, well, she's amazing. She, you know, she, without her, you know, people like, um, well, well, I mean, I don't have to start listing her, her brilliant things, but she was the Queen Bee at, 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 at uh, Jonathan Cape. And uh, she had to fight with. Um, uh, John with the, Tom Mashler, the the maestro, of Jonathan Cape, the great swashbuckling, uh, piratical figure there, saying, look, you know, do you is this chap Barnes? Is he? Are you just wanting to publish him because he's a friend of Martin's? Is that it? And you know, do you really think this? And do you really think we should hang on to this uh, Miss Brookner, who seems so meek and mild? And you know, she would fight her corner for all her. Her signings. She was simply brilliant. Uh, I'm sure she is indeed. Still. Yes, so the
3: women in publishing were very important at that yeah, time, weren't they? Yeah. yeah, absolutely.
2: Liz and Carmen were two real big shakers, and elsewhere, Mashler and McCrum were also pretty spectacular. Anyway, let's go and, down And then um, Hilary
3: Mantel, of course, and people like and Pat Barker were writing at that time, but they just yeah. weren't as famous. Mm. You know, and obviously um, went went on to to write Wolf Hall, and, and yeah. but every day as Mother's Day it was still terribly, terribly good, but it just wasn't as Fully formed as all the as the men's, right. so, you know, they just came out showbiz rock stars on the stage, didn't they? They entered into the Ha hey on why just yeah. with real pizzazz. They knew where they were, uh, whereas it took the women a bit longer to sort of edge edge
0: onto the <laughs> onto the big stage. I love the way you summed it all up at the end, John. Can you just do a bit of that for our listeners?
2: Should I read a bit? Okay. I said in the fiction of the 1980s, the English language was cleansed of indolence, fog, and banality. In their place came hyperactivity, attack, clarity, surging narrative. Readers could marvel at the twirling swordsmanship of Martin Amis, the forensic creepiness of Ian McEwan, the headlong storytelling verve of William Boyd, the supple luxuriance of Rose Tremaine, the vivid ventriloquizing of Peter Ackroyd, David Lodge's evocations of sex and rivalry on the academic circuit, the textured historicism of Graham Swift, Angela Carter's Venus Flytrap Feminism, A.S. <laughs> Byatt's skilful mashup of scholarly romance and Victorian pastiche, that's in um, Possession, of course, the exquisite bijouterie of Bruce Chatwin, the suave illusions of fact and invention in Julian Barnes's Belle Lettre, as in Flaubert's Paris and so on, the precocious mythologizing of Jeanette Winterson, the gleeful cruelty of Ian Banks, Salman Rushdie's linguistic Salma Gundy. I'm sorry, I was so pleased with that one. Salma Gundy. Uh, ben Okri's Dispatches to Emerge in Nationhood. Carol Phillips' Powerful Investigations of Slavery and Self Determination. Timothy Moe's Comic Topography of Hong Kong Immigrant Soho.
1: Dot, dot, dot. I could go on. I think <laughs>
0: what's so amazing about so. the 80s, just hearing you talk like yeah. that, and we, we all read all those books. Everybody you, can still quote the first line of Earthly Powers, you know, for yes, example.
2: <laughs> sure, the, the Bishop, yeah. Yes, that's true. We all were, we all were getting off with the same, with the same excitement. It's extraordinary. Yeah. yeah. And you and yeah. I and I and I It was an
0: age that
3: wasn't so so obsessed by film. It was sort of an age of words, wasn't it? I mean, now it's films... And now even films have diverged to do endless streaming, so nobody's ever watching the same thing at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. But for a minute, we all came together really to be in love with words and the mm. energy mm. of that, and how they took over your mind and how you could think with words, which you can't think with images. And it, yeah. it was it was it was a very very kind of startling
0: time. Do you remember the White Hotel bursting oh, yeah. onto oh. everybody at every party was just going, yes. "Have you
1: read I mean, the the way, White the, Hotel?
0: Oh my
2: God!"
1: First chapter. Yeah.
2: chapter. Nobody is does called... that. No, Don do Giovanni. Do. We don't and do it's, that. It's, it's <laughs> absolutely staggering, the pornographic burst it's of... Uh, it's it's a, <laughs> a fantastic, rude poem. It's breathtakingly rude.
0: I mean, I think the other really thing I that it really made me glad to be very old and delighted to have lived through the 80s was that the, the office life, you know, it was so sort of crowded and smelly and intimate and jostling and mm-hmm. drunken and everybody was sort of m- muddling around with each other. I just felt really sad that that's all gone in a way. We're all, look at us now, we're all on the Zoom. You know, if, if this was in the 80s, we'd all be in a pub doing this. You
2: yeah, absolutely yeah. <laughs> Sally and I, to me, sorry, Sally and her her people would meet up at Winston's Wine Bar near the British Museum on Tuesdays and Thursdays, the days of the parties. And we'd sit and drink wine and chat about, uh, about uh, publishing Filth and Scandal. And uh, then we'd take off, and there would be two two or possibly three parties in one night. And we would just go on to get off mob hander together, six or seven of us, I think. And I just love the uh, moment we went into a party, I think it was Andre Deutsch, where there was a particularly cross-patchy uh, publicity director, whose name escapes me. And she said... Possibly once or twice, she said, Ah, Sally, there you are with your entourage.
0: Last question is, who's really run the course and lasted?
2: The ones who've lasted are um, uh, Ian McEwen especially. He's gone yep. on without, without fail having any any number of really, really best-selling books on completely, completely different subjects. Also yeah. a mile away from where he started uh, with the uh, aforementioned, you know, rather creepy inspections of uh, the human body. And uh, Rose Tremaine, I think, has uh, played a blinder. And I mean, I think Marston's obsessions became, went away from fiction for a while and he was more interested in uh, essays and, um, and, in, and, in, and also in also. St- Talking, he talks about style as a kind of a moral thing, mm. uh, and his his last his last his last book was a uh, um, how inside, to write he tells story us how was, to do it how to write exactly <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it was a kind of gathering together of very uh, things he'd been thinking about for years all his career and it did seem a bit like a sign off that but you see, yeah, that's enough fiction except to fictionalise my um, my big love affair with a certain famous person uh, who he calls uh, Phoebe Phelps mm. anyway it says I mean Martin I mean, he was, he was a great inspiration to us all. I was going to say earlier, you know, what Martin did was inspire all the little journalists, the literary journalists like me, to write exactly like him. <laughs> he spawned this multitude of little, 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 little marts. Um, but I think, uh, yeah, I'd say, well, Graham Swift as well, who was one Waterland was a real big favourite of mine. And I'm glad to say he went on writing. And this terrific short novel called uh, Mothering Sunday was filmed lately and is just beautiful and I thought well Graham marvellous you, you you kept you kept at it you kept at it and that's yeah another masterpiece so I would say McEwen and Tremaine and uh, Graham Swift um, mm. have done well but then of course the, when I talk about the women are you kidding I me mean, you yeah, Dame Dame Hilary Mantel a double Booker Prize winner for goodness sake is top of the tree easily easily in terms of achievement and we didn't quite see that coming in, in 1985 when she started but Fair place, well, What's What a talent. Good God. World beating.
3: And, of course, some of the books that, that, that have lasted aren't necessarily the ones that were so important then. I mean, Empire of the Sun, for instance, oh. wasn't sort of part yeah. of that, of that yeah. world. But that is one of the finest books, you know, for... Mm. In, in in a few decades, I mean, that will always be around. That's like a Dickens book. And he wasn't part of anything. He lived in Surrey and Shepparton. He came to a Books and Bookman lunch once. A very quiet man. I mean, he'd also written fairly transgressive fiction with Crash, Crash in the past.
0: Crash was so
3: yeah. weird. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was very strange. But But this was just a miraculous book. And whether that came out of the period or whether it just came out of his past, you know, you never know. You never know completely how much the period created them and how much is just that person going through time.
0: Well, it's been an absolute joy re-discussing all this. And, you know, well done, John. Honestly, listeners, you have to go and buy this book because it's just, it takes you right back into the 80s. Thank you both so much. Thank you. Thanks. Next week, we're going even further back in time because we're going to be talking about Stonehenge. Stonehenge has always held a big place in our collective imagination and the wonderful exhibition at the British Museum has cemented it there even further. Well, that exhibition runs for another couple of months until the middle of July. And so next week, our guest is gonna be the curator of the World of Stonehenge at the British Museum, Dr. Neil Wilkin. So make sure you tune in then. Sadly, that's all we've got time for this week, but don't forget that the latest edition of Country in Townhouse is out now at selected newsstands and Waitrose, as well as online, of course, along with
1: the 2022 edition of Great British Brands. We can be found at CountryandTownhouse.co.uk, where you'll also find our sister podcast, House Guest, all the latest news on interiors from carol Annette. and just add forward slash newsletter to subscribe both to the weekly magazine newsletter and to the great british brands monthly we love your feedback so keep it coming to charlotte at countryandtownhouse.co.uk see you next week